Yeah, I, I think you know once I made the choice to make a literal underground railroad, it, you know, it freed me up to play with time a bit more. And so, in general, you know, the technology, culture, and speech is from uh, the year 1850. That was my sort of mental cutoff for uh, technology and slang. Um, but it allowed me to bring in things that didn't happen in 1850: uh, skyscrapers, aspects of the eugenics movement. For sterilization and the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, and it's all presented sort of matter-of-factly. Yeah, uh, can I quote something from the book about the forced sterilization? Not sticking to the the facts allowed me to combine different uh, forms of racial hysteria. These are flash readings by the Britton Fellows at Georgia Tech. The subject. I'm Matt Dishinger. I am a Britton Fellow in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. I work on contemporary literature and U.S. multi-ethnic literatures, and I'm particularly interested in conceptions of the U.S. South and the Global South and the Caribbean and and a lot of spaces that sort of operate outside of centers of national and international meaning making. The object. So the Underground Railroad is this novel that's set in you know in the the the, the waning years of the antebellum South. It's about Cora, uh, who is an enslaved woman in Georgia, who who is trying to escape as she leaves Georgia and goes to other states: South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee. Each state uh, has a kind of different relation to slavery, or you know, citizenship, or not. When she's in North Carolina, for example, they've embraced a kind of final solution approach to to ending slavery. Um, there is a moment when Cora is in South Carolina, which, as a state in the novel, seems to at first offer her a chance to live in a way that she didn't have a chance to live in Georgia. But, you know, she runs into all sorts of different <laughs> mitigating factors is, is a kind of minimizing way to, to put it. But one of them is this moment when she's been asked to or required to um, uh, work as a living prop in a museum. Uh, the, the purpose of the museum is to give white museum goers a chance to sort of survey the history that, ha- that has been produced here through the museum of uh, African peoples. So she is in different scenes that that are meant to sort of authenticate or, or narrativize, you know, what life was like before slavery, um, during slavery, on the way to slavery. And in one of those moments, Cora reflects on, you know, her own sort of position in the museum and how she can, you know, take back a bit of her agency by, uh, by locking eyes with people in the museum. The scene that I'm going to read from is, is, is a moment where she sees someone who she knows from outside of the museum um, who doesn't recognize her at first. Maisie Anderson is the character's name. Cora thinks in this moment when she decides to stare back at Maisie. It was a fine lesson. She wants Maisie to, to learn, learn that, that the, the slave, this is a quote from the text, that the slave, the African, African in, in your, your midst, midst is looking at you too. Is looking at you too. She got good at her evil eye, looking up from the slave wheel or the hut's glass fire to pin a person in place like one of the beetles or mites in the insect exhibits. They always broke, the people, not expecting this weird attack, staggering back or looking at the floor or forcing their companions to pull them away. It was a fine lesson, Cora thought, to learn that the slave... The African in your midst is looking at you, too. The day Isis felt under the weather, 
during Cora's second rotation on the ship, she looked past the glass and saw pigtailed Maisie, wearing one of the dresses Cora used to wash and hang on the line. It was a school trip. Cora recognized the boys and girls who accompanied her, even if the children did not remember her as the Andersons' old girl. Maisie didn't place her at first. Then Cora fixed her with the evil eye, and the girl knew. The teacher elaborated on the meaning of the display. The other children pointed and jeered at Skipper John's garish smile, and Maisie's face twitched in fear. From the outside, no one could tell what passed between them, just like when she and Blake faced each other the day of the doghouse. Cora thought, I'll break you too, Maisie. And she did. The little girl scampering out of the frame. She didn't know why she did it, and was abashed until she took off her costume and returned to the dormitory. The logic. Part of what we see happening in this moment is a behavioral thing. You know, we see Cora choosing to make Maisie uncomfortable with her own position in the museum and what it means to be there and what it means to look at this real person um, without really acknowledging her humanity at all because she's a prop in a museum, right? So what's interesting to me about this scene is that what's going on between Maisie and Cora is, is kind of similar to the position of the reader in the text. The position of the reader, particularly, you know, a broad reading middle brow public, um, the position of the white reader with a text about the Underground Railroad and about slavery, where perhaps their expectation is this is going to be a story in which white people in the 19th century do something good. Because that's what the Underground Railroad means in our national memory, is it's, it's a time in which we get to say, yes, we had slavery, but we also had the Underground Railroad. And the text refuses to give that. I guess I think the speculative is a big part of how and why it does that. The speculative, by the way, for me, is, is this very broad term that I think is, is, is even broader than, than science fiction. I'm really just using it to sort of denote the way that the text presents a kind of counterfactual history of something that we understand differently. You can sort of look at the way that Whitehead rearranges time in the Underground Railroad as, you know, wrong, I suppose. You know, there are skyscrapers in South Carolina in the middle of the 19th century in this book. But the, the thing that I argue that it's doing, the way that it's using the speculative, is it's asking us to think about what has changed in the sort of intervening time between modern South Carolina and South Carolina of 1850, and challenging the notion that, you know, the presence of skyscrapers really represents something dramatically different. By rearranging time, he's sort of using the speculative to challenge our ideas of progress. You know, I mean, there's a kind of rightness to that, even as it's, I guess you could say, like, historically not correct. To bring it back to this moment between Maisie and Cora, uh, this book is kind of looking back at its readers and asking them to think about all these questions. You know, what is their position with the text? What do they want from it? What do they need from it? What are they asking to be confirmed? Um, where are they open to being challenged? You know, Maisie runs away. Uh, that's what happens. I guess it's unfair to sort of pile onto a child in this way in the text, but I think that that kind of tips Colson Whitehead's hand a bit about, you know, what he what he expects from from his readers, perhaps not all that much, uh, but he wants them to at least acknowledge that this is this has happened, right? 
that if you're going to to read this novel to take a sort of positivist approach and progressive approach to American history, it doesn't really allow you to do that. And it wants you to understand that that's what you came to do, right? Rather than allow this speculative novel to kind of reshape the world that you live in, which is which is I think what speculative fiction is always trying to do. The project. What I'm interested in is how contemporary literature anticipates its reception particularly its literary critical reception. What's interesting to me about this novel is that, you know, it seems to already know how a sort of middle-brow reader is going to understand it, but also how literary critics can position it. And I say this as a literary critic who has already positioned it. What I find interesting about speculative fiction more generally, about Whitehead's work and about contemporary fiction, it's already orbiting in a, in a world um, where literary criticism is sort of known. I mean, there's a lot of public criticism, um, avenues for public criticism, like LA Review of Books is just one of the more famous ones, but of course there are many. What this book does is it challenges its readers to allow the book to kind of speak back. Where to check it out? So my article, States of Possibility in Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, is coming out in a special issue of the journal The Global South on the poetics of peripheralization, which is about um, contemporary literary poetics. Flash Readings are a production of the Writing and Communication Program in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication at Georgia Tech. Our theme music is by Benjamin Shirley. And the episode was recorded in the production studios at WREK Atlanta. My name is Lauren Neef. Thanks for listening. My name is my name. <laughs>